Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Sip on the go with a Starbucks iced shaken espresso. Our signature roast, shaken with ice, then finished with a splash of milk. Customize it to match your style on the Starbucks app. Make today a good day. Welcome to the band History. Today I have a special guest interview with the one and only Elliot Landy. Landy is most famously known for photographing the band and helping craft their iconic style. Landy has a lengthy career in photographing various artists and bands from the 1960s and 70s and has stayed relevant by creating and exhibiting his works around the world. Elliot has also published many books and most recently published the band photographs 1968, 1969, and 2016, which he made with the help of fans around the world crowdsourcing through their Kickstarter campaign. He is now working on funding his second band book, Elliot Landy, Contacting the Band. There will be plenty of details on how you can support at the end of the show, but for now, please enjoy my interview with Elliot Landy. Elliot, the first question I really want to ask you is how you got into photography. Uh, uh, when I was 13 years old, my parents took a, a bungalow in a in a summer resort about 40 miles north of New York City. And since I was 13 years old, um, I was too young to be a counselor in, at, at this resort. So they made me a counselor in training. That's what 13-year-olds were. And that meant that, that every week I went to a different, uh, a different activity. So one week was tennis, one week was boating, one week was 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 macrame for example and they had a photography class there and part of the photography set up was a was a dark room and uh, maybe the second or third week of the summer uh i i, I went into the dark room and i never left <laughs> uh i had absolutely and no interest whatsoever in taking pictures i had never really taken a picture uh but something about the dark room attracted me like a magnet to uh and i was in love with mixing the chemicals and reading the thermometer in a in a in a brown uh bottle uh, to uh, brown chemical bottle and uh making contact prints for the other kids in the in the camp and all that and i just stayed with photography the whole summer actually and um I, I look back now and I see that um, I, uh, I took some pictures that year, so I would have some some pictures to work with in the dark room. Um, 
And I look at the pictures now. I borrowed my parents' brownie camera. I look at those pictures now, and I see that that um, they were really good pictures. If someone came to me and said, I'm thinking about doing photography, what do you think? Am I talented or not? I, I would go, wow, these are really good pictures. Uh, uh, because they were taken, like I have pictures of my sister on a seesaw, and she's up at the top, and I bend down at the bottom of it, and I get the angle going across the picture. Really, really stuff that, that a person who's never taken photographs before doesn't normally do. So I, I see that I had some kind of innate feeling for, for uh, imagery. Uh, and then that year, I was entering high school. So when I went to my high school, they asked you to sign up for clubs that you want to belong to. I signed up for the camera club, and I went to the first meeting of the camera club, and, and um, the teacher is handing out papers and saying, all right, write in the paper, say, put down the name of your cameras, plural, and lenses, plural. Uh, and I didn't even have a brownie camera. Um, my family had a brownie, and that was it, which I had used like two or three times in my life. And I, I felt like I was not qualified to be in that class, and I was embarrassed to be. I, I was, I was uh, afraid to be embarrassed uh, uh, by by being so inept. Let's call it. I was very self-conscious as a child. I still am, actually, but not as much. I hope. I didn't pick up a camera until I graduated from college, actually, after that. So all those years of possibly taking pictures in high school and college, I just let go, and I can't understand that. And I think about it, it almost brings tears to my eyes, that how many years of, of stuff, I, you know, what I would have done and documented. Now, in those years that you weren't taking photos, what were you doing to stay creative? Were you writing? Were you drawing? Interesting. I started writing, actually. I started writing poetry. Um, I want actually not uh, what, what happened was in order, I, I, I was never a studier. I'm a, was in, I, I'm a spontaneous improvisational person and, and school did, didn't really get along with me too well. I was never up for studying and I never, I never read the lessons and the, the things you're supposed to do. And, um, I, when when final exams came around, I I would read I would read the books like the two days before or something like that, and pass the exams. And in order to do that, I, I needed to stay up. So I took Dexedrine or, or um, in, in order to keep myself awake and be able to study all night. It was, and that became a pattern. But but the side effect of taking Dexedrine is that you get a little bit stoned from it. Right. So when, when I took the Dexedrine, I started writing instead of studying, actually. I mean, I, I got to study because I passed everything and all that. But, but um, so that was the beginning of my writing thing. And I started writing some poetry. And, and so I look back at it now, it's still pretty good. I, I, I thought it's right, but I really didn't, didn't focus on being creative at all. It was like I was just a, I was just a kid going through high school and going through college. I went to a high school called the Bronx High School of Science, which is a specialized school that you have to qualify for. And, 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 um, and I, I got through that with, with mediocre grades, I'd say. Um, and we just wasn't interested in anything except talking about music to to um, there was one good friend I had. I remember talking to him in math class about about uh, about rock and roll music and records yeah. we liked and stuff like that. What about after high school? Did that help you want to get into photography again? Uh, college, I had to uh, decide what I wanted to do, and I really had no goal at all that I wanted. 
and um, I got a job in a in a um, uh, in, in the garment industry with a company. Which I, my goal was to earn enough money to travel. And uh, at some point during that, I went out to Fire Island. I was going out to Fire Island and um, working as, as a waiter there on weekends to make some money and to have some, some vacation time. I was inspired to take pictures out there. I saw something beautiful. I guess it was, it was the first time in my life since, since going into high school when I had no preset goal anymore. Mm-hmm. And I could take a deep breath and relax. So I borrowed my sister's, Pol- I have an older sister, and I borrowed her Polaroid camera. And I, and I took pictures of the moon, the full moon over over the landscape in Fire Island, and they published it in the local newspaper, actually, right away. I brought it to the paper. So really, I had my first picture published like very quickly. And I don't have that picture of the Polaroid, and they never gave it back to me. Um, but after that, I immediately uh, bought a, a Nicorex camera. That's, that's a, a Nikon was, was, was the Nikon and Leica were the two best cameras. Uh, and I, I bought a Nicorex, which was a junior Nikon. And I started to take pictures. I remember taking pictures on the ferry going out to Fire Island. And uh, immediately within a week, I traded in the Nicorex for a full Nikon because the Nikon did things the Nicorex didn't do. And that was really the beginning of, of my uh, photography. So now you're getting a little bit more into photography again. Uh, how did you really just take it to the next level? So when I decided that I wasn't going to work in this job anymore, I didn't have enough money to travel yet. Um, and I thought, well, what do I like to do in my life? I, I, uh, I like two things. I like taking pictures. I like going out with girls. And I, I wanted to you know, live from something I like. So the choice was pretty evident that, that I decided to be a photographer. Uh, and so I took a, a class in New York City, the photography was not considered an art form yet. And, and, and I'm sorry, I didn't mean in New York City wasn't considered an art form yet. In general, photography wasn't considered an art form yet. And there were very few photography classes around. I took one class in darkroom basics, even though I had done it when I was 13 at this day camp in, in the summer, I, I didn't really remember everything I had to do. So I took a very basic uh, developer fixer stop bath class. Um, and then after that, I sought out, um, I knew I liked what I was doing, but I wanted more classes in it. So there was one woman, there was only one uh, kind of official class in New York City about photography, which was at the New School for Social Research. And the teacher was Lisa Modell. And you had to qualify to be in her class. You had to have a, she had to show her some pictures you had taken and also have a meeting with her. She wanted to make sure you were serious didn't want to waste her time. Um, so I had my meeting with her, and she was just upside down about my pictures. She was just really, really enthusiastic, and she really liked them a lot. I, and uh, and um, and so that just that meeting with her, even though she said, yes, she can be in the class, and I was also the monitor, so I didn't have to pay anything. Money was always an issue for me. It still is, actually. I never. Uh, one thing I haven't learned how to do is to really monetize my life monetize myself that well i'm not complaining because it's certainly been a rich a very 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 rich life that's for sure um but i didn't have any money even for the class so uh i I was able to be the monitor so i'd get the class for nothing and i just had to take attendance there plus she really liked me and she asked me to help her in the darkroom a couple of times which i did um 
was very memorable for me to be in her dark room with her like that. Um, but all I needed was someone who who was supposed to be an expert, who was an expert, not supposed to be one who had the status of being an expert, tell me that I was good. Mm-hmm. And that's and and I didn't need the class at all. The class did nothing for me whatsoever. I was I was just kind of like floating in a cloud after she said that to me. Now a lot of that was post process and theory and just like looking at photos. Did you? ever become a working photographer's assistant or mentor with somebody that was more in the field, more in the nitty-gritty of it? So after her class, it was only about aesthetics. There was no technical stuff in it. The people in the class showed their pictures, and the class all talked about it. She commented on it, all of which I didn't even pay attention to and didn't even need because I've always gone my own way with pictures I've taken, and I never really took advice from anyone about the aesthetic of it. Mm-hmm. I never studied the aesthetic. With, uh, I never studied other photographers. I just picked up the camera and took pictures. Um, and and in um, uh, after the that one class with Lisette Modell um, for, you know, validation, I'll call it. Um, there's a man named Lawrence Shustak, S-H-U-S-T-A-K, that there's a website that's dedicated to his work, and uh, I have some of it personally, and I hope to really put out a little booklet, uh, probably an Amazon print-on-demand booklet of it. He's a great photographer. Uh, he did well, was a friend of W. Eugene Smith, and had a lot of, was part of the whole uh, 50s and uh, 50s and 60s photography world in, in New York City and Manhattan. Um, anyway, he had a class on advanced darkroom photography, and I I took that class, and I became the, the assistant for that class also. I would come early, and I'd set up the chemistry for him. I became friendly with Larry personally, and I, I went out as an assistant on a few of his jobs also. Uh, we, we drove in a Rolls Royce one time to take a, a, a book cover photograph, and I, and, uh, I learned a lot in that, not about Rolls Royces, but about photography. And I helped him in the dark room. And in the dark room, I saw that he would spend a day or two days working on a single print, which, which was like a, an unimaginable thing, uh, for me without, without, without the tutorship of a, a person like that to see that that's what you had to do to get perfection sometimes. And you did it like that's what Gene Smith would do, for example, just days and who knows how long uh, on, a, on, on fine art prints. Um, so I, I learned the, the dedication needed to it. And of course, you didn't spend the day on the clock. If you could do it in an hour, that's great. But mm-hmm. usually you couldn't. You had to go, test and test again and again and try stuff out. And then you had to look at it. After you did it, you let it try and you looked at it and you, and, and you evaluated it. Is, is this worth doing and so on and so forth. And after working with Larry, what were some of the first paid gigs you had? So when I was um, uh, ready to to photograph, uh, and I needed to earn money from it, um, my girlfriend called up one day and she said she worked for the New York Film Festival in Lincoln Center, and she worked for a publicity company that that did film promotion. And I was always into films, into foreign films from as early as I was on my own. I would go to see foreign films. And my girlfriend was also into that. And she said that her company had a job to represent an actress named Harriet Anderson. Harriet Anderson, who was a Swedish actress, 
and she had been in some of Ingemar Bergman's first films. She was his first muse, or one of his early muses, and so super famous in in, in the international film industry and known to people in the United States who like foreign films. And she was in New York City making a film and, and my girlfriend was representing her and she said I could get you to, to, to go on the, uh, uh, on the set and I could get you permission to, to go on the set and take pictures and, you, you, and then you can try and sell the story. I, I went on to the, uh, they were shooting on the Brooklyn Bridge actually, they were filming on the Brooklyn Bridge and I, I went down early in the morning and I, I, they knew I was coming and they gave me access. And it was magic between us. Like it was the same kind of magic as when I stepped into the dark room for the first time. It was such a natural connection. I felt so comfortable with, with these people and they felt so comfortable with me um, that I, I went back every day for the next three or four days and I got there before they started shooting and left after they started shooting and went home and processed the film and came back the next morning just because I was in love with it. Yeah. Not, not. I mean, I wanted to get the pictures also, but I've never been able to photograph when I didn't love what I was photographing. It's, it's it almost like I can never photograph uh, music that I didn't like. So if I didn't like the music, I just didn't take pictures. About maybe three, maybe four or five days into the into the relationship, so to speak, the director asked if he could see some pictures. And so I brought him some pictures the next day that I had processed. Uh, some were color, some were black and white. And and uh, he, he liked them, they're really good ones. And um, he asked me if I wanted to come to Denmark and be the photographer for the movie, for the rest of the movie, uh, when they finished shooting it. So that was my first job actually, was taking me uh, to Denmark. Um, I went out, I got a passport in two days said goodbye to my girlfriend actually that kind of we broke up after that um i mean we did see each other once in the summertime and and, and we're still friends to this day and so on but that was the end of the relationship um and began my career in photography and uh, since harriet was so so famous in in, in in scandinavia um i was able to sell pictures that i took to major magazines in denmark and sweden and and uh, I was immediately successful, so I got used to being a quote-unquote good photographer, good successful photographer. How did you switch from photographing stars in Hollywood to getting more involved in political activism? Um, I had the opportunity to stay in Denmark after the film was over, and I didn't want to because I wanted to do something to stop the Vietnam War. I, I knew that it was going on, and I felt it was my responsibility to do something to stop it. And my first thought was, I'll go to Vietnam and I'll show how bad war is, how terrible it is. And my second thought was, I don't want to go to war. I don't want to be in a war zone. I don't want to be shot. I don't want to be hurt. You know. And uh, so I decided that what, what else I could do was to take pictures of peace demonstrations and show how, how many people were against the war. So I, I, got, I got an assignment from a German magazine. I think it was Stern, um, because I had, I had made the contact when I was in Denmark. And um, they contacted me in New York and they said, uh, there was a demonstration at the Pentagon and they said, especially focus on the violence. That's what they said they wanted. We want the picture of the violence. And so, wow, that's really effed up. That's yeah. really messed up. Immediately, why, why focus on the violence? That's one aspect, one small aspect. Even then I knew better than, than what, what the media was focusing on. Um, so I, I took the assignment, I did it, and I didn't really get any violence for them. 
Um, uh, there was one incident where they they threw tear gas and people scattered, but the violence really didn't happen until probably late at night. Um, and that was always the MPs uh, hit, hitting the people, not the people starting anything. Mm -hmm. As was my experience through peace demonstrations in general, it was it was it was the police that usually initiated uh, initiated the aggression, as we saw in the Trump rallies when he was elected president. This year, you know these years in Washington, that what they did was just horrific. I then try to sell the pictures in New York that uh, that I'd taken at the peace demonstration, and no, no, none of the major media was interested in it. And I started photographing with underground newspapers. There was one called the West Side News and Free Press, and then I that was my first one. And then I was working with a uh, newspaper called the Rat, under, uh, the Rat Subterranean News, um, and uh, and they were. Uh, the West Side News started out as a normal West Side community newspaper, but the editor was very activist, and they used to publish my pictures not that many times, but enough, like really, really full, full, full frame images, no cropping, and and so I felt I had a medium for for my 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 social expression mm -hmm. as well as my artistic expression. And at some point, the West Side News started cropping my photographs and making them small and making collages with them instead of respecting the integrity of the of the image itself. And I, I didn't like that. And that was my first uh, kind of understanding that basically, before anything else, I was an artist and I was interested in the visual beauty right. of what I was doing. And the content of what I was doing was almost secondary. Like first it had to be visual beautiful, and then what it was showing and what it meant was the second thing that mattered to me. I'm just saying personally, I'm not talking about uh, photojournalism in general, but just what, what vibrated with, with my, my inner feelings. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I then started working with this new newspaper called The Rat and um, subterranean news, meaning news from the underground. The underground was, was the anti-war, the social justice uh, part of the culture in those years. When did political activism shift into music? You know, a lot of music around that time was linked with activism. I, I did that uh, and became the photo editor and one night when we had put the, the, the newspaper to bed, um, I was walking along 2nd Avenue and I saw a marquee on a theater that said, Country Joe and the Fish Light Show. And I said, what is that? What is Country Joe and the Fish? What is Light Show? You know, really, what is Country Joe and the Fish? You know. Um, and I walked over to the box office and I heard the music coming out of the theater and I had a, a press pass with me, and I showed it to her, and she let me in the theater. And I had my cameras with me. I remember standing in the back of the theater for a few minutes, completely knocked out by rock and roll music and and this light show that was going on. The light show was was like five, five, four or five people who were uh, behind a big screen on stage, and they were creating colors and, and, and lights and mixing oil and water together and 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 um shaking the oil and the water each in in their you know different containers and mixing it and 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 moving it in time and rhythm with the music and
and then they had slide projectors or 16 millimeter film projectors also and mixing this whole thing up but really being a visual musical accompaniment to the music it was like it was like a, a musical part it was like a visual part of the music and i wanted to see it better so I, I um, took out my camera and I knew that would let me go down front. Even I didn't have a ticket or a seat or anything like that, but I took out my camera and I walked up to the front of the stage and I started photographing. Um, so really the first uh, rock and roll music I, I photographed was Country Joe. And I uh, then afterwards I tried to sell the pictures because I needed money. I didn't have a job at all. I was paying for all this with whatever money I had saved up from my other job. Um, so I, I sold a couple of pictures right away uh, of that. To one to a magazine called Escapade, which was a girly magazine, a so-called men's magazine, but I don't know why they called it a men's magazine. <laughs> but um, you know, but they also did other things like like Playboy had interviews and stuff like that. Um, so I so I remember uh, the, the art director really liked my work, and he bought I think at least one picture, and said show me more. So anyway, so that was my beginning, and, and uh, I started to and the next the next week after Country Joe was Big Brother and the Holding Company, Janis Joplin. And they didn't they didn't name Janis Joplin separately at that point. It was just Big Brother and the Holding Company. I, I took the photographs and I started taking them around uh, to, to to magazines. Um, and also we more importantly we published them in the we published them in the rat and, and um, along with the following week sort of Jim Morrison and Jimi Hendrix and um, people like that of, of, of that level of, of quality. Um, and I felt like um, when I was publishing those photographs of Frank Zappa and so on at the Fillmore East, that I was inviting people to become part of a new culture, of the underground culture, of the alternative culture, uh, which was a culture of love and sharing. When you went to the Fillmore East, somebody inv in in invariably offered you a joint to smoke, and you were part of a group, right. and you shared with each other. And and the, the freedom of being stoned, which I wasn't that much, because I had to take pictures of being stoned and, and, and being being comfortable with people around you. You felt like you were brothers with each other rather than strangers. And uh, it was a new experience. And, and we had to, in those years, get people to, to disown the, the traditional way of, 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 of being, which is where this country is now. With traditional way of being is nationalistic. We are one country. You are another country. We don't have anything to do with you. You know, we are... Uh, and we're separate. We're I'm black. I'm white. I'm different. You know, yeah. I'm I'm I, I'm I, I speak Spanish. I I speak Greek. Uh, so to try and get rid of that separation, and that's what the '60s was about. Was about creating a harmonious experience of people, um, and also uh, helping people to follow their inner beings. Um, to uh, go with the flow was was my favorite expression of those years. Was to feel what, what to be aware of what felt best best to you, and follow that in your life. Yeah. Um, and another expression was do your own thing, uh, which means to find out what you like to do and to do it, and then uh, to extend that to, if you could earn money from that. Also, make that like what you're doing, yeah. and what I've done, and so on. You find out what is important to you, 
and you, and you share it with people. So really, my my entree into music photography was a political a- act. I felt it was to publish the pictures in the in in this underground newspaper. Um, and to change people's minds, to bring them down to the concerts, which would blow your mind, actually. Yeah. To that music, music has a has a has an inner resonance that that uh, cognitive experience doesn't have, that reading doesn't have, that film doesn't have. Um, and uh, so it was really a way of changing the world uh, at that point, which is what I was trying to do, still trying to do it, actually, um, making it better in some way. Is this where Albert Grossman enters the picture? Well, at the same time, as I was taking the picture, I needed to earn money from them. So I, would, I started taking them around. And I had some... Um, New York Magazine had just become an independent publication. And I knew some people there. They asked me to photograph Big Brother and the Holding Company and focus on Janice. And, of course, when they said that, that put me off because... For me, it was the whole band mm-hmm. together that was the experience. I'd gotten to know them personally. Um, and they went, um, uh, one time, when the, one of the first times I went backstage was actually at the Country Joe and the Fish concert. I went backstage after that and talked to them. And then the following week, I went backstage and hung out with Janice Joplin and Big Brother and got friendly with them also. And another photographer who was there was Linda Eastman. She was also in those years a, a, a photographer, and she was photographing the music scene. So she was also in the dressing room those two times at the Anderson Theater. Um, and of course, we know she later married Paul McCartney. Right. Um, and uh, but I never had contact with her after that. We were friendly, and when we met those couple of years, I, I, I loaned her like five or ten dollars. I forget what it was one time she asked me. And I remember when she paid me back also, it's funny. So I took pictures, I was taking photographs of Janice, and one of the things that, one of the events that they were going to was a press conference that um, Columbia Records had to celebrate the signing of Big Brother and Holding Company. So while I was photographing them, the deal to be on Columbia Records was, was announced. And I went to this press party, and Albert Grossman was there, and Clive Davis was there, and the the, uh, executives of the record label, and all the people in the band were there also. And I took really nice photographs of Albert and Janice together, which, um, as a courtesy after that, after the fact, I dropped off at his office, Albert's office, um, so they could see them. While I was photographing with the West Side News doing these peace demonstration photographs, it was announced that Bob Dylan was going to play at uh, a, a memorial concert for Woody Guthrie at Carnegie Hall. And this was the first time Dylan had played in at least a year, probably more than that. He had had a motorcycle accident, and people thought that he might have died because he was completely out of the public eye. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, then there was this announcement in the newspaper that he was going to appear at this concert. So... Um, of course, the tickets were were, were gone in, in a moment, and um, I called Carnegie Hall uh, and and said I was a photographer for the West Side News, and can I get a photo pass for it? And they said you have to call Bob Dylan's manager, Albert Grossman. So I did that, and I contacted that office, and they sent me two eighth row center 
seats for this impossible to get con- get tickets to concert. All right, and in in my uh, communications with them, I told them I was a photographer. Uh, so when I went to the concert, so they gave me two tickets, and I invited uh, a girlfriend with me. I wonder if she still remembers it. I don't know. If she, I haven't had any contact with her in like 50, 60 years or whatever it was. Yeah, but I wonder if she still remembers all this. It'd be interesting to hear from her if she's listening now. <laughs> um, I walk in. Carnegie Hall with two cameras over my neck like I usually walk around when I'm going to take pictures and the guard stops and he puts his hand up and says no pictures allowed here and I said oh that's okay I've got a police press pass which I had and a letter from uh, Albert Grossman's office with the two tickets and you know telling him I'm a photographer and and he says "Uh, nope sorry you got to check your cameras so we went back outside Carnegie Hall and uh, I took one camera Apart, I took the lens off the camera and, and and I gave that to my girlfriend and said, "Put it in your bag," and I checked the rest of my cameras. So we go and sit down, and there's a lot of people playing in the show. And I waited; I didn't take any pictures until Dylan came on. And then when he came on, I surreptitiously, I thought, uh, took photographs. I took my, I, I bent low over the seat in front of me, and I kind of tried to be, tried to hide, and I waited till the loud parts of the music to snap the shutter because it made noise um and at some point i see on my left in the aisle on my left uh, uh a woman waving to me obviously telling me to stop photographing and i ignored her and kept photographing it and then i see that she gets a guard and she's and the guard then starts waving to me also uh, to take and i may believe i did see them at all and then the guard starts to walk up the aisle and he's going to walk across the, the front of the audience and come up the aisle to get me. You know, I saw that was happening. And then I acknowledged him. And I said, oh, okay. And I, and I put my camera down clearly. But they, and the guard then started waving to me, come out, right? You know, you can't stay there anymore. So I knew they were going to ask for the film. So I, uh, took, I took the film out and I gave it to my girlfriend. I put in another role and I told her, um, you know, don't give up this film, no matter what you do, don't say anything. And then we, uh, I waited for the the song to end. The guard was going to walk across the front of the stage while they were playing music. I remember that. And I waited for, for a song to end, and I got up and I went out. And then the guard and this woman signaled me to come outside the theater in, into the, in, uh, in the, side, the, the side entrance of the theater, Anyway, they, they, they brought me outside the theater in, 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 the, in the hallway. Um, and there's like a, a group of people, maybe five, eight people. I'm not, just don't remember exactly. And Albert Grossman's in the front of the group. And he starts har- har- haranguing me about, what are you taking pictures for? You're not allowed to take pictures. And everyone knows you can't take pictures, blah, 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 whatever he was saying. I really don't remember exactly what he was saying but there was this group of people and i'm saying but i got pictures i got tickets from i didn't i don't remember if i knew who he was or not mm-hmm. at the time if i knew that was albert grossman so i might have said something silly like but i got tickets from albert grossman's office and i showed the piece of paper and so on and as and he said well you're still not supposed to take pictures and he says give me the film right and while he's saying these things, the same woman who spotted me taking pictures in the first place is on the side of the auditorium, and she's saying to him, he switched the film, 
like she saw me change the film. Very observant woman, obviously. And and as as she and I heard her say it right, but he didn't hear it the first time. And then she starts to say it again. And then she starts to say it. I get louder. I said, "You're not going to get this film." So he he can't hear her like that. And at some point, I. The camera was, was on my chest, and at some point, I took the camera in my hands, and I said to him, I, I showed, like, I, I put it in his face, so you're not going to get this film. You're not allowed to do that. And I knew he was going to grab the camera and take the film. Basically, I was baiting him to do that. Yeah. Um, so, so he does, he grabs the film, he opens it up, and, and pulls the film out, gives it back to me, and says, okay, now go home something like that, you know, really in a nasty way. So the next time I encountered him was at this press conference and it was a public event. I took pictures and there was no incidents. We didn't acknowledge each other at all. And I got these really beautiful photographs. And then I dropped them off at his office and then I got the assignment from New York Magazine um, to take pictures or I had the assignment from New York Magazine and um, I went up to his office with Big Brother one time when they had a business meeting as part of my journalistic duties mm -hmm. um, and took some pictures. And then at some point, John Simon, the music producer, he was producing Big Brother's album and producing the band's. Uh, he produced the, the music from Big Pink and the band albums, the first two albums of the band. And he came over to me and he said, very, very nice man. He said to me very gently, he said, Elliot, he says, you got to stop taking pictures now and you, you have to leave because the, the, they're going to talk about business and you can't be, uh, you can't be here for that conversation. So I packed up my cameras, not thinking anything of it. Years later, he told me that Albert said to him, get that guy out of here. I can't stand him. <laughs> because of the event, but John being a kind person, didn't want to hurt my feelings, you know, now, how did your interactions with Albert Grossman and Janis Joplin lead into the opportunity to work with somebody like the band? I wish I had the time frame of this. I need to tr trace it down. But maybe a couple of weeks after that, I was still photographing Big Brother and the Holy Company, right? And they were having uh, a... Um, uh, uh, they were sorry. I was still photographing Big Brother and Holding Company, and they were performing at Club Generation. Club Generation was a downstairs space that later became Jimi Hendrix's Electric Ladyland Studio. But it was a nightclub at that point, and it was very low ceilings and 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 very very loud in there. You couldn't hear anything. And I'm on the back of the crowd taking pictures and. I feel a tap on my shoulder. I turn around. It's Albert, right? And and he's waving at me again. He's pulling me. He's waving at me to follow him. Okay, you couldn't hear anything at all. He just waves at me. So I don't know if I'm going to get thrown out or not. What's happening? Um, and I didn't feel threatened. There was no feeling of, of negativity at all about it. But I really had no idea what was going to happen uh, because maybe he didn't want pictures taken. That's all. So uh, he takes me into a, a utility um, room there where they keep the cleaning supplies and stuff like that and close the door. We can hear each other. And he said to me, um, are you free next weekend? And I said, yeah. He said, I said, what's happening? And he said, uh, well, I, we have a new group. I, I have a new group that we need pictures of. And I said, oh, what's the name of the group? And he said, well, they don't have a name yet. He said, maybe the Crackers or they may not have a name because uh, they don't want to be labeled and, and um, um, uh, be known as 
uh, sorry, be known for a specific kind of music. They mm -hmm. want to be open to playing different kinds of music, different genres of music, and so on. So we may not even give them a name. We don't know. It might just be five guys playing music. Uh, he said to me, uh, go up and bring some pictures and, and meet them in the recording studio in New York. They, they were mixing the they were mixing their album there. So I make an appointment to do that, and I bring performance photographs, like pictures I'd taken of Country Joe and Janis Joplin, and, and um, I bring them up, and I meet Robbie Robertson. He comes out into the waiting room. He said, well, they're really nice pictures, but these aren't what, what, we, want, what we want for the album. He said, but they're real nice. And so he said, okay. I don't know if he said okay to me or I got it from Albert the next day. And he brought me into the, the, the studio where they were working. And my first experience of the band's music, I believe, was the introduction to Chess Fever. That was on these studio quality speakers, right? And I walk in, it was like it was like trumpets greeting me, something like that. Mm -hmm. I believe that was it, but it was if not, it was some other really spectacular part of what they did on music from Big Pink. And um, I I went up to to Toronto um, to photograph them. Can you let the listeners into maybe describing a little bit of the personalities of each member of the band? So I flew to Toronto with with John Simon. Um, and they picked us up from the airport and I forget who picked us up, but it was probably two or three of them in the car. And then John and I, and that was my first in, in interaction with them was driving from the Toronto airport to, to Rick's uncle's farm, which was an hour or two uh, outside of Toronto. What they wanted to do was to, um, say thank you to their families for, for, um, bringing them to the point where they were at in life now. And in the 60s, it was, uh, it was part of the counterculture was to, be, was to disown your parents for being part of the culture that created war and the economic system that we had. And a lot of people were saying, I hate my parents and I don't want to talk to them again, and just, just dismissing them completely. And the guys in the band said, that's nonsense. These people have, have helped us grow up here and given us everything and sacrificed everything. So they were making a political statement, a social-political statement, and they wanted to include a, a, a full-page photograph of their relatives, of their mothers, fathers, and etc. in the album. So when I went to, they were all from Canada except Levon, so I went up to Canada uh, to uh, Rick's uncle's farm, and all their all their family members is uh, gathered at the farm, and I took the photograph that w that wound up to be inside music from Big Pink, which was an an, an honor in honor of of, of their families. Um, so that was the first time I experienced them, and and it was like the same kind of fit that I had when I met the people from Denmark uh, on my first job. It was just so comfortable together, and I didn't personally interact with them very much at all. I just kind of did my job. Uh, I'm really not much of a talker in general when I meet somebody unless uh, uh, that they want to talk to me in, in a way. I, 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 I don't go. I don't go with a with an agenda that I want to communicate. I don't go with the intention of impressing them with, with, with how much I know or who I am or how nice a person I am. I just go there and, and kind of go with the flow and see what happens. So, um, 
I photographed them alone. First, we did the next of kin. They called it. It's a photograph of, of their next of kin, and then we took very just a few shots of them standing in front of a, a, a fence post and stuff like that, uh, and just rather nice pictures. But only like a couple, really. Kind of amazing that we didn't do more. But that wasn't why we were there that day. I don't know. We just didn't do it. And I don't remember anything about them from this ride. <laughs> Nothing whatsoever, except that we we took the ride, right? Yeah. And then I I I, I do remember in, in, interacting with them. I couldn't really tell who was in the band because everybody there looked alike. You know what I mean? Everyone was everyone was in the same normal everyday clothing, right? So so then when when I photographed them uh, as a group, then I saw who was in the group really. But before that, I don't think I really knew. Um, and. Uh, they, when we took the picture of their next of kin, they were in the picture with them, but they were every, each member was with his, was with his, his own family people. So they weren't standing together like that. And Levon's parents couldn't be there. Um, uh, they were in Arkansas. So the idea was to hold up a picture of, of uh, his parents, which you see is, is what we did. What did the band and Albert think of those first set of photos? Uh, I, submitted the pictures, I guess, to Albert's office. Um, and they then asked me to come up to Woodstock to take pictures, pictures of the band itself, of the group, of the guys. There was no name yet. But there was no name until the album came out, actually. Do you know why there wasn't a name for the band yet? Were they throwing stuff out? Did you get any insider scoops? My uh, memory of the story of the name is, is different than, than what I Robbie tells. I'm sure he probably knows better than I do, but as far as I was told, that there there was no name uh, when when the music from Big Pink came out. It didn't say the band at all. Um, it just said uh, uh, they published my picture of them in, in the album. And under it, it just said the band colon uh, Robbie Robertson, Garth Hudson, et cetera, et cetera. And then people started calling them the band because there was no other name to call them. And Robbie in the documentary, it, it's a different story. But um, that's how I remember it. Um, so anyway, um, I go up to Big, Big Pink. I go up to Woodstock. I took a bus. I was living in New York City. And I took a bus to Woodstock. And they met me um, at the bus. And they drove me to Big Pink. I don't remember who met me at all. I didn't know them yet, really. <laughs> they were just strangers to me at the time. And we started taking some pictures here and there. And then it was... Easter Sunday weekend. It was Easter weekend. And I arrived on a Saturday and I stayed overnight and then I slept on the couch. And then they, they um, on Sunday, we also took a few pictures and then they, they had to go someplace. So they left me alone at Big Pink with, uh, with Leon's girlfriend and they went someplace. I didn't know where they were going. And so, so Leon's girlfriend and I, we got stoned and we started taking pictures of each other, kind of, and, and just having fun. And at some point she said to me, um, I, I want to go find Levon. So we get in the car and we go to this big, big wooden house um, and we go inside and it's Bob Dylan's house, which I didn't know at the time before I went in. And, and the guys were there. Uh, having Easter Easter Sunday dinner or whatever they were having there, 
together. And and I remember I saw Bob from afar. I, I hadn't met him at all. And uh, his wife, Sarah, was, I remember her being so gracious to me when we walked in. Of course, I felt completely out of place there. Was number one, we weren't invited to, to go there. And, and number two, I didn't really know anybody yet. Um, and uh, Sarah was just so nice. She invited me in. She asked if I wanted any food. I just remember how, how, how gracious she was to me at that point. But we only stayed for a short time because Lewan wasn't there. So uh, his girlfriend uh, then, her name was Bonnie, she's, she's passed away now, um, uh, said to me, okay, let's go. So I followed her back out of the house. We drove to somebody else's house, and Levon wasn't there either. So then we just went back to Big Pink. And, and then when the guys came back, I guess we took some more photographs. Anyway, I would go back to the city, and I processed the film. And uh, what my process in those years was making proof prints. Um, so if I thought a picture was good, I'd make an 8x10, quick 8x10 print of it, so you can look at it and decide if it was really good or not, if you wanted to use it. So I went back probably a week later, and I showed them the proof prints I made and the color slides. We looked for them, and they were really, really good pictures, as, as everyone would agree who sees the pictures now. But they said, we don't really see the picture we want for the album. Great photographs, we really love them, we'll use them for stuff, but not really good for what we want. I, all right, so I came back uh, another weekend and moved out of Big Pink. So uh, Garth and Richard had a house and Rick and Levon had a house and Robbie was never was not living in Big Pink. He was uh, living with his wife, Dominique, in their own house. So we took some more pictures uh, uh, and same process, I went back to the city. And meanwhile, I was getting very friendly with them and getting to know them. Uh, and they said to me, Rick said to me, um, uh, anytime you want to, any, um, Rick and Levon said to me, any, anytime you want to come up to Woodstock, you're welcome to crash here and don't even bother to call. Just come on over. You're always welcome like that. It was that kind of a closeness that we had. Um, and and um, so each one of them, I, for some reason, I never had, the, I talked with Garth a lot, actually. <laughs> um, and I got, I talked with Richard. We, bo we both had cats. We liked cats, and he had an interest in photography. Um, so I gave him my camera a couple of times to take pictures with and so on. But I didn't really have much to say to Levon or Rick. Um, and Robbie, although it was a very, we were close. In other words, there was a total comfort there. I didn't have to talk to them to be comfortable with them, right. let's say. Um, I mean, they, you know, they said to me, you can stay over anytime you want to come over and you can hang out here like that. So, um, and Robbie was the person I interacted with about business and about the taking pictures. So when I would bring up the, the, the photos I had taken from uh, the, last, the last sessions, um, everyone would look at them. Of course, we all sat around and, and shared pictures and stuff like that. But Robbie was the spokesperson. So at the end of the session, I would get together, you know, they'd all talk and this and that. And then I would talk with Robbie about what, which ones they liked and all that stuff. Um, of course, while we were passing out pictures, they all said which ones they liked. But, but when the group decision was made, and it was a group decision, um, uh, Robbie would communicate with me. You asked me uh, to, in, in what, what kind of people they were. Yeah. And, 
And this kind of keys into how I got the, the, the photograph that was included in using the big pink is they were very special people. They were very grounded. They, they weren't acting from ego. Uh, they weren't, when, when they talked to you, it wasn't about showing how much they knew. It wasn't about, um, impressing you. It was just about the weather. It was just about, uh, some funny thing that happened with a girl. It was about a life experience. Um, and uh, it was just very, very comfortable for me. So comfortable that we didn't need words, in a way, to be close to each other. It was that kind of a thing. All right. Now, it's been several decades since the original photos were taken. They stay relevant uh, more than ever. And I'd love to jump into that recent uh, project that uh, you did revolving around the band. Your first band book in 2016 was a successful successful campaign on Kickstarter. I believe it was the most successful photography book on Kickstarter ever. Why did you go with crowdfunding then? And, you know, why is it, why are you doing it again now? Yeah, I've had uh, now at this point, I think 10 books published. And at the time it was probably eight books. Um, and um, I was tr trying to get a book of my photographs of the band published and, and I couldn't find a publisher that was wanted to do it. So that's why I, I financed it myself with Kickstarter. And um, it was the highest funded photography book in Kickstarter's history at that time. Mm -hmm. And it was much like I, everyone was astounded. Everyone, everyone I knew, I was astounded how much money I got. I got over $200,000 for it. The Kickstarter uh, official tally was 193 something thousand dollars. And then... Um, it went after that people kept contacting me and pledging for it also. So it wound up over $200,000 and that gave me the freedom to do whatever I wanted to do. Um, it gave me the money to uh, go through 12,000 photographs. Uh, I hired a young woman first as an assistant and then she later became the designer of the book. Her name was Rachel Anna Dopkin. Uh, she has her own band now actually, but she was a fan of the band. And she went through all 12,000 pictures that I had taken of them, all the contact sheets and all the slides. And she picked out, I think, 1,200 of the best ones. And I went through those 1,200 and picked out 600 that I liked the best. And I made proof prints of every one of those 600 pictures. Because um, for me, I can't really judge a photograph on a computer screen. I really need to see it, in, especially if I'm if I'm looking at it for a paper uh, publication. So uh, I, I made 600 proof prints of it, and because I had the money to do it, you see, because the Kickstarter allowed me to do that, and I I then chose from those 600 maybe 300 that I liked poss possibilities for the book. And uh, we put them together side by side because my vision for the book was to show mainly large photographs. I, for me, I, I'm a photographer and I take a picture to be an integral uh, uh, object, to be completely self-contained. I don't take it to be part of a layout in a book. And most photographic books, you see their layouts. They're, they're, you, you see a picture spread one third of it on, on one page and the other third on another and two thirds on another page and so on or they fit two or three pictures on a page and so on which is okay 
But for me, the reason I was doing this, this book was just because I had taken what I felt were really beautiful photographs so, uh, from a, a, a photography point of view, regardless of the fact that of, that, of who the, what the people had done, the music they had done, to, to me was irrelevant in deciding if a picture was good or not. Um, and I did the book really as, as an expression, as a work of art is what I want to say. And I don't think of myself as an artist. I never intended to be an artist, nor do I intend to be an artist. When I take a picture, I just want to get a, a beautiful picture and show it to people. It's still the same thing. So for me, that's what the book was. It was a presentation of beautiful photographs, and I want people to look at them and feel something from them, uh, kind of what I was feeling when I took the picture what the guys were feeling when they were in the picture, um, an expression of, of essence, I call it, which is which is how you feel inside. Right. Like, um, so so um, I had, because there was no publisher, um, not only could I choose the pictures I wanted to, but I could choose the size of the book. And I wasn't sure what the best size would be. So I made, I have a very large printer in my house. So I made double page spreads as if the book were 10 and a half. Oh, first of all, I decided I wanted it to be square pages because some pictures were vertical and some were horizontal. And, um, I, I want, um, and the only way to, to, to use that in a book without having, uh, to change the size of the photographs was to have a square page. So, I decided it should be square. That that was, and I didn't have to discuss it with anybody. I said square page. That's it, you know. And then, and then I um, uh, printed double page spreads as if the pages were ten and a half by ten and a half, eleven by eleven, eleven and a half by eleven and a half, twelve by twelve, and that was the largest size I could go up to on my printer. Um, and then I, I sat with those double pages double page spreads. I sat in an armchair and I folded them as if they were in a book. And I, I, I looked at it and I thought, what's the most comfortable size to see the picture that's in front of you? If it's on a 10 and a half inch page or a 12 inch page. And I really sat and I contemplated as I looked at it and I decided that the ideal size for a page to look at a photograph when you're sitting in a chair uh, holding the, the book at, at 45, open at a 45 degree angle, which is how you would be looking at a book like this, um, it would be 12 by 12 inches. Okay. And that just by chance turned out to be the size of an LP album. Wow. Okay. That's very good. Yeah. That's what I said also when I realized that some weeks later, I had no, no thought that it was an LP album size. Yeah. I said, that's far out. A great expression of the 60s is far out. And I still think of things like that. And I, I really said, wow, far out. Like, that's amazing. So anyway, then I chose the, the printing quality that I wanted. I, I tested out uh, like four or five different printers who sent me sample, sample books they had done. And I, I found one that was really exactly right on it. And I, I made what's called wet proofs. To, to wet proofs. Uh, when you print a book, they send you these days digital prints. So you, you got to check the color quality and, and the... And, 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 and the the contrast of the photographs and so on. So basically, they they print pages on on an Epson Epson type print, an ink, large inkjet printer, usually Epson prints. They say, um, 
and and then you you correct them and you say well it's too red or too green or too bright too dark uh, but this isn't the same as what the printed page is going to come out so because i had gotten enough money like this i had them make what's called wet proofs which are which are prints on a printing press itself which is rather expensive to do but i had been financed for this so i had a lot of wet proofs made and got everything really perfect is, is, is all i could all i could say with, with the printer and then um so really it was my dream book i wound up you yeah, I wound up using a different printer and had to go through that process again, but that was only because the commercial distributor that I got, which is Backbeat Books, um, uh, insisted on using their own printer. And it was a big mistake, and it cost us six months. It took us six more months to put the book out because of that decision. And the managing and the editorial director, the managing editor, apologized to me. So we made a big mistake to do that. I'm sorry uh, that you know everything was delayed. Um, and they also did a, a poor job of distributing the book, which he apologized to me also. But my Kickstarter was super successful, actually. And, and um, I printed a lot of extra books for everybody to have. Another project that you were working on was Once We're Brothers, the documentary. You lent a ton of photos to that film. Uh, you talk about the care behind publishing the photos now. How do you handle that when working with other people, other creatives that are using your work? Well, I had learned... Uh, at some point, interesting story, uh, but I had learned at some point in my career to let go of perfection, that when you're dealing with other people doing things, uh, commercial things, even artistic things, that that they had their own needs for the material that didn't necessarily go along with my needs for the material. And I learned to let that go, that that was just part of life and part of the thing, part of the appropriate thing to do, because I'm taking pictures of other people and they may want to do things with the pictures that I don't want them to, that I wouldn't do with them, mm -hmm. but still I have to respect what, I have to respect what they want. So therefore I have my rights, they have their rights, which is really, I think the proper way this should all be approached. Um, but when I took the photographs, basically I owned, legally, I owned all the rights to the photographs. I took the copyright to it. So, for instance, I couldn't sell uh, products using the, the uh, showing people, uh, like on T-shirts and stuff like that. But artistically, I'm free to use it in my books as fine art prints. And so I'm, that's that's the nature of, of, of the American and European legal systems. Um, but I, I learned to let go of, of what I wanted to be done with the pictures. I feel a responsibility to the guys in the band, to the music in the band, and to the fans of the music in the band to allow my pictures to be part of this history mm -hmm. like that. So, so when, when, when Daniel came to me and wanted photographs, uh, there was no question that I was going to cooperate with them and uh, without even knowing how they were going to use the pictures because basically it was none of my business, I felt, because it was a film by one of the members of the band. It wouldn't matter which member of the band it had been, I would have responded the same way um, because I felt uh, a responsibility to them, a debt to them, almost a spiritual debt to them. Um, and over the years, for example, when, when Robbie was no longer in the band, uh, 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 Leon would, would call me and ask me to take pictures of them for publicity, for, for new albums they did and so on. And most of the time I didn't get paid for it, but I still felt like, wow, boy, I, I owe these people something. I actually wanted to do, I didn't do it because I felt like, oh, I never do anything because I, 
Well, one time I did something because I felt like I oh, I should do it, and that was a big mistake. But that's another part of my life. <laughs> but um, I, I always, when they needed pictures, I helped them out. So, uh, and uh, when Robbie needed pictures for his book, I gave him the pictures, and um, that's what I was doing with this film. I felt like, uh, uh, even though there wasn't a lot of money there, it wound up being comfortable in the end. But in the beginning, they were that they weren't they weren't very well financed at all. It was kind of a, a shoestring thing they were doing. Yeah. Um, but I, I I cooperated. Now on social media, there are a ton of fans that share your work. Uh, how do you feel about your photos being published online, like on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram? Well, that's what it's for, actually. I took the pictures so they'd be seen and liked by people. At the same time, it's it's a it's an income source for me that I really need. Yeah. Um, I, I think if I were very wealthy, I might just put all the stuff in public domain or something like that. But but sorry to say, I'm not. Um, and I, I don't like it when they change anything. Like if somebody colors it in, for example, or or cuts it out and so on, or they put colors over it and so on, just because it makes it look ugly. Um, and also, what I do want from it though is credit. So yeah. when, when when somebody shares a picture and and you know there's no credit, then they took the picture. And the reason I want credit in the beginning of my photography career, I didn't really care about credit so much. And then Larry Hoppin of uh, of uh, the group Orleans told me in like about 10 years, out, 10 years after I'd taken the pictures, he said, you know, you, he said, you gave these guys their image. This is what, what is so important to them and so on. And your name should be, should be known for it. You know, don't, don't disown the stuff because I've always moved on in my life. To, to new new genres of work. Um, so when my stuff is on the web, number one, if it's for commercial use, then they, I want them to be paid for because I need the money and fair's fair. Yeah. Someone's making money from it. When somebody uses it in a blog and, and they don't have the money to pay for it, then then that's okay also. This is, uh, you know, I, I just, I overlook it, let's say. Um, it creates a problem though um, because there's so much of that that it's hard to root out the commercial uses of it from the personal uses of it. But whenever I find, and I don't look for these uses, I just happen to see them. And so, of course, I'm happy when people use it to express their deep feelings about the, what they experience and the music they experience. Now, your new project is what you were calling a companion piece, uh, which is called Elliot Landy Contacting the Band. But before we get into that, can you explain what a contact sheet is for the listeners that don't know? Well, when when we shot on film, um, there were 36 pictures on a roll of film. And when you shoot black and white film, the photographs are negatives. So basically, you take all 36 frames of film and you put them on top of one piece of photographic paper and you expose it to light and you have a picture, uh, a print that shows 36 different frames. And they're all very small. They're one by one and a half inches in size. And then uh, we would go over those contact sheets with magnifying glasses and pick out the ones we thought were best. And we'd circle those ones, let's say. And my process was then to make proof prints. So I would take the, out of 36 pictures, I might find one or four or five pictures that were good on the sheet. And I'd make eight by 10 proof prints of it and decide if I liked it or not. That was my process with the band. So these contact sheets though, really are like shooting a video of it. Uh, not like shooting a video, but in the contact sheets serve 
uh, uh, let's see, the context he served as, as a as a a, um, a temporal record of what happened during the photo session. I took a picture of him there first, and then the guy sitting there, and then they moved to this position. So it's really like being there. It's a way of, of being a fly on the wall at, at the photo shoot. And, and even I am shocked at how interesting these things are, because I was there, and I looked at every single picture I ever took, and um, I picked out the best ones, and I've lived with these pictures for so long, especially making the first book. Um, so the contact sheet is 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 really surprising me as well. Even though I was there saying, oh, my God, I don't remember we did that. And look, they were standing in that position then, and now they moved here. And I was pointing at this mountain, and now I'm pointing at that mountain, and so on. So I'm surprised at, at how fascinated I am by these contact sheets. Uh, and I can't imagine anyone who likes the band, who's really into the band, not thoroughly enjoying enjoying seeing the the, the, the process of taking these photographs. And it really shows... Uh, who they were in the sense that single photographs don't. The, the book size is going to be the same 12 by 12 inches as, as the first book. And, and the, the contact sheet is going to be larger. If you've ever looked at a normal contact sheet, it's very difficult to look at. You need a magnifying glass because they're relatively small. But because of the page size and the layout we're going to do, that the pictures are going to be much larger than the normal contact sheet would be and much easier to look at. Um, and some will be oversized. Some will be, um, like, instead of having 36 pictures on a page, there'll be 36 pictures across two pages, which then doubles the size. And some will be 16, uh, 18 pictures on two pages. So they'll be much, they'll be in large contact sheets to really make it interesting and easy to see. And right now, the, uh, I'm I, uh, financing this on with a Kickstarter campaign and it's uh, you just look up my name Elliot Landy and you'll see the campaign and it closes I think April 8th is the closing of it and it hasn't been doing that well I don't know if you want to include this in the in the podcast or not but it's up to you it hasn't been doing as well as the first one not because it's not as interesting to people who are in the band but obviously because of what's happening in the culture and and society and uh, if this book doesn't get financed in this way, I doubt that I'm going to do it because I have so many other things to do in my life uh, that I moved on in many, many different directions uh, with photography. Now, I just want to reiterate, this just isn't contact sheets. Uh, there's also blowing up photos with write-ups as well, included in the book, correct? Yes, yes. I, I think that's very important that, that I take the one picture that I like and uh, from many of the contacts, not all of them, or maybe all of them, depending how much money I have. If I have, if I get very well funded, I, I make the book bigger and bigger. So, um, uh, so, so um, I'm taking the one best photograph I like from a contact sheet and then blowing it up on the page next to it or the next page to show that. And the rewards are really good. Like, like you can get some of my prints for effectively half, half the normal price that I charge on the website. Um, and there's what I call lithos, which are like $100, $150 a piece, um, which are as good a visual quality as my fine art prints are. Um, and there's a few copies left of the first book, actually. That's going out of print. It's, it's actually out of print. But I have some remaining copies of it. 
and there's a few of the deluxe copies of of the book also. This new book will have a deluxe edition and a signature edition. The signature edition is hand signed by me. The deluxe edition is in a slipcase and includes like an eight and a half by eleven fine art print that I make myself. And with the print will probably be of one of the contact sheets. I think I'm not sure yet what it's going to be, but it's going to be really nice. So, and the print itself, if if I were to sell it for my print prices, would cost the same thing as the deluxe edition of the book is going for, which is $400, and the, the signature edition is $85 for that. And that's because it's such high quality. It's really, really gorgeous. Uh, anyone who's seen the first book I did, uh, the band photographs, knows what I'm talking about. I spent so much time getting that right. And uh, so this is going to be the same way. Well, you know, thanks again, Elliot, for coming on. Uh, I really want to give the floor to you. Is there any last things you'd like to say about this project or any other projects you're working on? What I want to say is that I love these pictures, that I um, have a lot to do in my life, a lot of new projects, and I've done a lot more than that. And when I go back to these and I, I print them, people order them, I look through them, I say, wow, wow, wow. And the reason I'm doing the second band book is because there's so much that wasn't in the first one. And um, I look at these pictures and I say, wow, how come that wasn't in the first one? How come that, how come I didn't use that? The reason was I didn't have enough space and so on to do it. So there's so much left here. And I'll probably, if this one works, or even if it doesn't work, well, if this one, uh, I'll probably do another one at some point in my life. I hope to do another one. I may not have the energy for it because, as I said, I've moved on with a lot of the, I do impressionist flower photographs that are gorgeous. And I have a book of photographs of my wife uh, we call Love at 60 because we, we, we knew each other in college, didn't see each other for 37 years, and met again when we were 56. And I took beautiful photographs of her, so that's a project that's coming up, and, and my interactive music films, and so on. So please support this, because, because you'll love it, I'm sure. That was my interview with the wonderful Elliot Landy. I hope you all enjoyed learning about his career from the very beginning to his work with the band and now his current project, Elliot Landy contacting the band. Uh, You learned a little bit about it through the interview, but again, I want to reiterate, you can find this book and help fund it on Kickstarter uh, by just typing in Elliot Landy contacting the band Kickstarter on Google. You can go check out his Facebook page. Uh, in his website and his Instagram for more details on that. Now, the goal for funding uh, is over $100,000, and he's halfway there with $50,000, currently with 166 backers and 17 days left to go. So head over and check that out. There's a lot of great perks. You don't need to get perks. You can just pledge uh, a certain amount of money, Um, but there's great, great things like $25, you get a great postcard. Uh, At $85, you get a signature edition of the the book. At $95, uh, you get a signature first edition book, amongst other things as well, photograph. All these rewards stack as well. Um, All the way up to if you're a a big spender there, you can can spend well over $1,000, $4,000, even $5,000 pledging for things. Um, So definitely, let's make this happen, guys. We're a community here. like Elliot was kind of talking about because of COVID-19 right now, 
the book isn't necessarily the focal point in a lot of people's lives, but if you can support, let's make this happen. Uh, there's a ton of great never before seen photos in this book and great stories from Elliot. The first book is amazing. Um, and you can definitely still get copies of that as well among his many other books. In other news, I really want to point out a few other things that have been going on. Uh, you know, a week or so ago it was the passing of Richard Manuel and uh, it kind of blew up, but we put a little bit of a fundraiser out there to raise money for mental health awareness. Obviously Richard passed away via suicide uh, and I really think a lot of that stems from mental health issues. So we raised $140 in like a day or two uh, that was donated to the mental health Association of Ontario. So a big thank you to those who donated to that. Um, hopefully that little bit of money helps out. Uh, remember, you can follow us all over the web, Facebook, the band podcast, Instagram, the band podcast, Twitter, the band podcast. We put a ton of effort into providing you historical context behind the photos on there, including the photos of the wonderful Elliot Landy. Uh, you can check out the bandpodcast.com for more information, FAQs, donations, etc., etc. So thank you again for listening to the Band of History, and we hope you have a safe and wonderful weekend and week. Hey everybody, this is Brian Reisman, host of the podcast Side Jams, which is now a proud member of the Pantheon family of podcasts, I've been a freelance entertainment journalist for 25 years now, and I often end up in conversations that go off on tangents. Suddenly you're discussing someone's outside passion or hobby, something you didn't know about, and it leads into revelations about their character and about their life outside of their art. I've often had to cut those details out because a story had a strict word count or a specific focus, so here the entire focus of the podcast is just on their side jam or side jams. For example... Alice in Chains frontman William Duvall spent some time talking to me about reading history, which led him into talking about his public school education and how it was so terrible in high school that he actually managed to get into a private school for free so his life could take a different course. In this series of podcasts, you're going to be hearing my interviews with musicians of all different backgrounds and genres, talking about everything from surfing to collecting antiques to stargazing. I hope you enjoy Side Jams. Please tune in regularly and I'll have a lot of interesting guests in store for you.